This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Let me welcome this powerhouse to the show. I'm really excited, and we're going to have a nice conversation. She's uh, listed as a family physician and epidemiologist, but she's so much more than that. Let me welcome to the show. Dr. Camera Jones. Hi. Thank you. Hey, Karen. And I say it, Kamara. Kamara. Okay. Kamara. Thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate you. Um, Stanford educated. I think about, you know, your journey into medicine and then went and got, you know, the epidemiology degree, Johns Hopkins. I mean, you've gone through the system and then much like Carter G. Woodson realized something, something's wrong here. So, so take us on that journey, you know, of what, what radicalized you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Because indeed, although I don't consider myself radicalized, my work is on naming, measuring, and addressing the impacts of racism on the health and well-being of the nation. And it started when I started wondering why are doctors, why am I as a medical student being taught that when I talk to another healthcare provider, I should say, this 35 year old black female presents with crushing chest pain or whatever it would be. Why do I need to say she's black versus the 35 year old white female who presents with the same symptoms? And so I started challenging that with my attending physicians above me and they had some crazy answers like, well, it helps us figure out which the patient is in the emergency department and all that. But that the real answer was that that was what they had been taught that race was a determinant of health directly, biologically, in our genes type of thing. There's still some some people who believe that. But I started saying, well, hmm. Then I went to the epidemiology and understood that the way we did our studies, the way that we collected data by race, and we would say black rate this, white rate this, Hispanic rates this, but we would never try to figure out what was under those differences that we were documenting, that that was the huge problem. So then I asked myself, what does this thing we call race actually measure? It does not measure social class, although there's, because of racism, people of color are more likely to be poor in this country and white folks are more likely to be wealthy in this country. It does not measure culture because there's not one white culture or black culture or Latinx culture or indigenous culture. And in fact, and it really doesn't measure genes. Like I could go really deep, but it, we have mapped the human genome. There is no basis in the human genome for racial subspecies. So why is this race such a good predictor of who's dying three times as often as who else in terms of maternal mortality? You know, black mothers going in to have a baby, to start a new family, three times as likely to die than, as white mothers. Why is race associated with how many of our babies are dying before their first birthday, the infant mortality rate, and diabetes, and on and on? It's a true fact that race, so-called race, is associated with that. But the question is why? Because it's not in our genes. And then I came to understand that the same race 
that a medical admitting clerk might check off for me if I went into an emergency department and couldn't self-identify. They just check it off for me. That's the same race a police officer notices, same race that a teacher notices, a judge in a courtroom, a taxi driver. That is that socially assigned race, that interpretation of how I look in this race conscious society. That is what racism operates on. So that race is a substrate on which racism operates. I know that was a long answer. I hope it made a little bit of sense. Lots, <laughs> lots of sense. <laughs> because what we have to understand is we need to name racism as the risk factor. We need to name racism as the, the well, I'm gonna just tell you my definition of racism. I'm gonna tell it in a sentence, then I'm gonna come back around and lift up the important parts. Racism is a system of structuring opportunity and of assigning value based on so-called race, based on the social interpretation of how one looks in our race conscious society. And it mm. has, has three impacts. It unfairly disadvantages some individuals and communities. It unfairly advantages other individuals and communities and it saps the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources. Mm. So that is my one sentence definition. Now, I want to just tell you what's really important in that definition. The first thing is that racism is a system. So it is not an individual character flaw or a personal moral failing or even a psychiatric illness. It can show up in those ways, yes. But in its essence, it's a system of power. It's a system that does two things. It structures opportunity and it assigns value. Based on what? Based on what I already told you, based on the social interpretation of how one looks in a race conscious society. So those listening on the radio now can't see me, but here in most parts of the United States, you look at me, I'm clearly black, but in most parts, in some parts of Brazil, you look at me, I'd be just as clearly white. In South Africa, you look at me, I'd be just as clearly colored. And if I stayed in any of those settings long enough, my health outcome would take on that of the group to which I've been assigned, even though I have the same genes in all three places. And that's not true just for me because I'm a light-skinned Black woman. For every single one of us in this country, every single one of us, not every single Black person, every single, every single one of us, there's some other place on this earth where our so-called race would be quite different from how we are living it today. Mm. Now, I just want to finish up with it. I said there were three impacts. Most people, when they think about racism, especially most white people, when they finally acknowledge mm, maybe racism exists, they get to the point, well, yeah, and it's unfairly disadvantaging some individuals and communities. But it shouldn't take any of us long to recognize that every unfair disadvantage has its reciprocal unfair advantage. So that's the, so racism is unfairly advantaging other individuals and communities. That is the unearned white privilege that we hardly ever talk about in this country because it makes some people, especially some people who are living as white, uncomfortable. I want to come back to that in a minute. But the third impact many of us are missing, and that is racism, even as it unfairly disadvantages some and unfairly advantages others, is sapping the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources. So when we don't invest in the full excellent public education of our kids, or when we're complacent with the wholesale warehousing disproportionately of so many black and brown men and women in our prison system, we are wasting brilliance and leadership and creativity and love and you know everything 
Yes. And we don't recognize the loss. So I've been talking for a long time. So please, Karen, talk back to me. No, um, <laughs> you know, I've been taught to be quiet when people are uh, informing and are brilliant. Uh, I'd rather you talk than for me to talk. I've been grappling with this this year in particular, uh, coming into it. I want to figure out how to have a conversation daily on these airwaves without bringing in race and racism because it's a made up construct. So I feel like in some ways acknowledging race gives it power because it doesn't exist. It is, is, it is something that was created to, to form power in this world. It became a global power structure that constantly because of the color of our skin keeps us in a, in a caste system that we can't break through right globally. So help me because you you studied this at the, the, the most tertiary levels. How do we have conversations that awaken people to that reality that I'm a white person when people call up and I'll say to them, what makes you white? And they cannot answer the question. What's white culture. They cannot answer the question. And then they get, they get angry, right? Because they're so wedded to this thing. They're so wedded to this thing that defines them, but they can't define it themselves. And I want, I, I, we need as a society, as a culture, as people to break through and say there's no such thing as race. So I am going to agree with you. I'm that, but there is racism and that different. So there, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take it to a research level and then jump back. If I were to ask anybody who's been in this country any amount of time, let's say two weeks or longer, <laughs> or grown here, right? Okay. If I were to ask you, how often do you think about your race? And I always put race in air quotes, you know, and I always put it in quotes when I write the thing because of what you're saying. It is not what we think it is, right? It is not biology, but it is a real classification in a race conscious society. But if I were to ask people, how often do you think about your race? We've done this, 60% of white folks would say never. Here are the categories, never, once a year, once a month, once a week, once a day, once an hour or constantly. So 60% of white folks in a certain year said never. Whereas 60% of Latinx and black folks were saying once a day or more frequently, right? That's an eternity of experience apart. If I were to ask you in this country, how often do you think about your caste? Most people wouldn't have a good answer, but if I were to go to India, and ask, how often do you think about your caste? Everybody would have an answer. The Brahmins would say never, and the Dalits would say constantly, but you know what I'm saying. So we have in this country, a race conscious society. In India, a caste conscious society. There are different ways. Actually, I think that racism is casteism based on the social interpretation of how one looks. I've been saying that a long time. I know that Isabel Wilkerson agrees. Now, I mean, she has her book, Caste, and this is all good. But I think that, so we have to acknowledge these, these, these systems that do two things. They, well, they have rules. So who's in and who's out. Even the rules for who is black in Puerto Rico is different from who is black in Venezuela is different from who is black in- In Brazil. In Brazil, in Atlanta, in lots of different yeah. places. Right, so, so, the, so the different 
race conscious societies even have different sorting rules. They have different labels. Which you makes know. it so uh, crazy, Dr. Jones. You know, I, we, we talked about Homer Plessy today. Mm-hmm. Homer Plessy. G.K. Butterfield. I, I, we'll bring him up, too. Like, these are people who white people can't tell are black, right? <laughs> right. They, they, they right. couldn't tell, right? right? right. So, oh, one, one 32nd, that, you know, it was a rule on a So, because to have black, blacks and whites can't marry there's blacks only, whites only. You can't sit here. You can't sit there. So we have to have some law on the books to determine what is blackness. And it's one thirty second, right? That means a right. great one, great great grandparent had to be black, which means everybody's black, basically. Right. So that's why the distinction, so that legal definition or that kind of blood quantum definition, and all of those things, are not what is operating today in our society. Even children who are who have one so-called white parent, one so-called black parent, most of them, you, they walk, you, you look at them, most of them are gonna be black unless you see them walking down the street holding hands with the both parents and you might call them mixed or something like that. But some of them might be passing as white. What I'm saying is the way that people will look at them, the way that the opportunities, the doors will open or close for them, the assumptions about their brilliance, the assumptions about their everything are based on the social interpretation of how they look in our race conscious society. That is what race is. And that is a real thing that is real because of racism. It's real because that social interpretation is not just, oh, that's cute. The social interpretation is then uh, determined on whether we're gonna invest in your neighborhood or not, whether we're going to allow you to buy that home or not, or do you have to pay three times the interest rate or not? You know, so that it's going to be whether a police officer pulls you over and gives you a warning or shoots you and kills you. It's the difference between these white killers who are in a mother Emanuel church in Charleston, I don't like to call the name, but the one who, when they knew he had killed nine people and the police officers didn't shoot him or anything. They ushered him into the police car, thought he looked hungry and took him to Burger King before they, before they booked him versus, and the, the most recent one, I don't like to call their names, right. but the one that shot and killed three, three people. And now he's a hero. He got, you know, as opposed to the, the brother who was in the car and, and had his yeah. legal gun and was like, yeah. you know, so the difference is not because of something that is in us. It is the despising of people who look like us. And so I, before I, I wanna say this, I wanna say two things. There are four key messages. We need to talk about race a little bit, but I don't talk about race, I talk about racism. And there are four key messages when we talk about racism. Racism exists, that's a, that's a key message. A lot of people, white folks especially, are all in this racism denial thing. The second is that racism is a system. The third is that racism saps the strength of the whole society. And the fourth is that, yes, we can act to dismantle racism. So I am not like some who say we can't do anything. 
it's going to take collective action. It's going to take action over generations. I describe myself as having a barrel of batons. So, you know, in a relay race, you know, you have a baton and you pass it back to the one behind. I have a barrel of batons and I'm passing them back and back and back. And I'm hoping that each of my mentees, anybody I just who hears me, who gets a baton, uses it as a model to create their own barrel of batons. And we're gonna be passing, passing, passing. I know that this is not a three year, five year, 20 year, 50 year thing, but I am willing to plant the acorn today so that our grandchildren can have shade. We need to name racism. We need to ask, we can't be walking around broke. Oh my God, racism, you know, what can we do? Name racism, ask the question, how is racism operating here? And if you have time for me to talk on that in a minute, I can give you real good insight onto how you can that. And then the third step is to then organize and strategize to act because yes, as individuals, we can do things, but collective action is power. Collective action informs us, inspires us, propels us, protects us. Collective action is power. That is what we need to be doing all the time. Thank you, Kamara, Kamara, right? Kamara, I love you. I love your spirit. I love the fire in you that you you have such a uh, a generosity of spirit when you talk about these things. You can feel that you care and you love, but yet they're still like fire, fire, fire. You, you're you got that you know you got that bone and you're not going to let it go. I, I I wish that I had that kind of a spirit. My I'm a little more abrasive. <laughs> We need all, we need, we need sandpaper. We need gelatin. We need all, we need it all, Tanya. So stay, stay, stay bristly. Um, I need to write my books like you, first of all, but anyway, Tanya. Write your book. I, I always, you know, I, when I think about it, I use this thought of like when they were doing the makeup, the black makeup and um, Iman, when she first signed her deal for the makeup, they told her they were going to do a black line, but when they made the announcement at the big whatever annual thing, they said no. So um, she invested in that herself. And we know that Rihanna now has this, this makeup line that has made her a billionaire. Racism before, and before means, her, hold on, Pat McKay, before her. Right. But racism means they're willing to walk away from billions of dollars rather than to uplift people who they have decided look away that they don't like them. They will walk away from the money because of this system and the ideas of that. They don't even think we have money. They, they don't value us enough to even value our money. No, uh, 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 Dr. Okay, Jones. Okay, go. Doctor, they, okay. They, they, they absolutely, no, they absolutely, no, they know that we over-index or we, uh, you know, we spend more money than any other group per capita, which is why they double down. Every immigrant group, when they come into this country, they set up a business where? In our community. In, the, in, the, in our community. There's a number one kitchen. There's a 7-Eleven run yeah. by people from other, they, they, I'm going to go yeah. down the list. People who yeah. come into this country, they know where they're going to build their wealth. They come into our community. Right. They come right. into our community. And, and when we talk about TV, they know if we're going to launch a new network, we got to have black shows on because we need those eyeballs to get leverage that advertising base. And when you look and then at all the drop them shows, once we're we get the advertising we get the, the money, we're going to drop them. So they know the value. Hell, they brought us here to build the value of this country. They know okay. the value of this. They but do. I think what, what I think she she and I are saying is they're not going to they won't make money in the uplifting of us. Right. Yes. 
They will not make money in the uplifting of us. Yes. Okay. Or the investing in us. They, They will skim off the top. I think they won't invest in our well-being. Exactly. They, they will extract to invest in our growth. Right. They want to extract. Right. Yes. Right. Right. Because then extract. that self-sufficiency means we no longer get to rape and pillage and use. Right. That's right. Uh, That's so right. we're going to keep doing this work here, uplifting people and giving them the tools to build. So break this down for us, Dr. Dr. Jones. How do we dismantle racism? I am so... I this is my life's work here. You know, you, you, you sit in this space every day of excellence and you get to be with people like Tanya Pinkins and Dr. Gray Carr. And you, and you realize that something is inherently wrong in this world where the, these voices are not everyday voices that they have literally handpicked and curated people for us who will never free us. And they did that on purpose too. They know that they can throw a couple of million dollars at this one or that one, put them out there with their ashy voices, get, get give us our leaders as well. And we, you know, and we're going to be like, we're going to support them anyway, because that's who we are. And no one's going to be free, not collectively. There'll be a few handpicked millionaires, billionaires here and there. We're going to give you a couple of billionaires, but y'all collectively, nah, nope. Dr. Jones is here. We're about to dismantle racism. She's, we're going to start it. I don't think we're going to finish it, which means I have to invite you back to keep this going. But go ahead, Dr. Jones. Okay. Well, what I'm going to say, when I was, so five years ago, six years ago now, I launched the association that I was president of, the American Public Health Association on a national campaign against racism. We had three tasks, to name racism, to say the word, to ask how is racism operating here, and then to organize and strategize to act. That question in the middle, how is racism operating here? That is the key for us to identify early targets for action, you know, levers that we can intervene on, that we can lean into. So how do you answer that question? Well, the first answer I'm going to give you is going to give you a headache. But how is the mechanisms of structural racism are in our, you know, structures, policies, practices, norms, and values. And you're asking me, Kamara, what am I supposed to do with that until we recognize that each of those, these are the elements of decision-making. So let me break this down. Structures are the who, what, when, and where of decision-making, especially who's sitting at that decision-making table and what's on the agenda. So the first thing is whenever any of us finds ourselves at a decision-making table or we set one, Our first job should be to look around and say, well, who is not here who has an interest in this proceeding? And then our job is not just to represent their interest. Our job is to create space, to find them a way to the table. If structures are the who, what, when, and where of decision-making, policies are the written how of decision-making, practices and norms are the unwritten how of decision-making. So practices are just the way we do things around here. Don't have it written down. It's harder to, to distill what that is, but way we do. norms are the way it's expected that we have done things always and we will continue to always do things. But those are the unwritten how of decision-making. Values are the why. Mm-hmm. Now, I can tell you that if you take that question, how is racism operating here at my child's daycare? Or how is racism operating here on my job? And you start looking at the who, what, when, where, how, and why of decision-making in five, 10, 15 minutes, you can come up with five, 10, 15 
different possible levers of intervention. So for example, who's on the board of directors? Or, you know, or who's, you know, how do people get promoted? Who is doing the reviewing to hire people? All that. So you can start understanding that. So whenever, whenever I'm asked to speak on children of color in nature or underrepresentation of people of color in clinical trials or why are, you know, how is racism operating here with the police killings of unarmed black and brown men and women? How is racism operating here in terms of the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on communities of color? I can sit down five, 10, 15 minutes and by go going through that structures, policies, practices, norms and values as the elements of decision-making identify targets for action. Well, if we didn't have the insurance system, something, 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 then we could do this. Now, what do you do with that? That's kind of the landscaping. You know, you, 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 you can it, one person deal with all the five, 10, 15, no. What you need to do then is you need to understand your base of power. What is your wheelhouse? But you're not gonna try to do this alone. You are going to, you know, uh, Tanya, you talked about my allegories. I haven't even told any of my allegories. My superpower, if, if I were to tell you, my superpower is to break down complex issues in terms of stories and images. Well, here's an image for us. When you think about geese flying in a bee formation, you know, the reason they do that is that the goose at the front is blocking the wind for those who come behind, who are blocking the wind for those who come behind. So then I used to worry what happens when that goose at the front gets tired? Does she drop down to the earth? Does she fly off someplace random? No. What she does is she flies back into the flock and another goose takes the lead. What we need to do is we need to either identify or grow our own flocks. We need to decide what direction are we going on? So we have some kind of agenda and then we need to fly together, spelling each other in terms of leadership working together because as I say, collective action is power. So now I might say, I'm sitting in this place, we're gonna take this thing. But if we just worked on one thing, if we just worked on, on, on a specific voting rights thing that's been abridged right now. In can, I, can I jump in though? Come on, come, come, yes. Cause we talking about education. So you okay. were saying, how does it play out in school? So I'm gonna give you a school okay. thing from my personal life and you can say how we get collective. Okay. So most parents can't do this, but it's important. So in nursery school, my child got suspended. Mm. And now most parents would be like, you got suspended, you're four years old, you're gonna get a whooping, blah, 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 blah. But it was a, a charter school and I was a, and I'm just, you know, I'm me. Mm -hmm. So I, I had to volunteer. So I go in and I talk to the principal and I'm like, so why did he get suspended? Well, you know, they were playing one of those violent games and, and he knocked so-and-so down and he got hurt. And I was like, uh-huh, well, I said like, they're, they're you know, they're kids, they're, they're, they can barely walk. Why, you know, why do you think this was purposeful? He told me that it was an accident and he said he was sorry. She said, well, I didn't believe him. And so I just had to leave the school because right. what, you know what I mean? You, that, that's her decision-making, that's her thinking, that's her how. My three-year-old doesn't get the benefit of the doubt for knocking someone down. Right. Right. He gets suspended for three days. Right, that's why privilege is the benefit of the doubt. That's another thing right. about that. But so now when you left the school, you were taking care of your child. I was taking care of my child, but other But you left the school the same way. That's right, I did. You left the school the same way. So I must say, maybe you should leave the school, but also organize other 
parents of color or other parents who might be concerned about what's happening to, to the kids of color, even though you've left the school to say, this is what happened. This is you know, why I've left, but we can't leave it that way. Because mm -hmm. you're right, other parents might not even have the conversation to find out what happened. And this happened, to me, this happened many times in many schools. I pulled my children from schools repeatedly. And, and it's why I care is because most parents don't even have the time to come to the school. They're working, you know, trying to organize the parents. The parents who are organized tend to be the affluent parents where there's a parent who doesn't work. So when you're trying to get these parents organized. I know, but so this is what I'm saying though. Are we just going to leave the schools like that? So it's almost like there was, there's this uh, program that a lot of people tout. It's now 20 years old where it, it was moving to opportunity. And so, you know, they had vouchers that they were giving people who were in under-resourced, disinvested communities and the housing projects. And some of them could get some vouchers to move to middle-income neighborhoods. And those families, for the most part, those families did better, although sometimes the Black the black teens, when they moved, did worse in those settings. But that was a success. But do you move some people to opportunity and leave the disinvested community um, without voice? So, so here's about the schools. All of us live in a school district, three. I mean, I mean, we live in a school district, but we have an elementary, a middle school, and a high school in our district. Some of us will never have kids. Some of us had kids and they went through the public schools. Some of us had kids and they went to parochial or private schools or charter schools, right? But all of us live in a school district. Some of us too old to have, our kids, you know, have kids. But all of us live in a, in a, in a district. I suggest that we pick a school level. So if I think I'm most comfortable with dealing with the elementary school and invest my time, if I have the extra time, the parents who are there can't, they can't hardly, do but get their kids to school and feed them and all like that. But all of the rest of us need to invest in our public schools. We who do have this excess energy sometimes feel, well, my kid's not in that school or they graduated 20 years ago or whatever. And all of us need to be concerned about our public education, no matter where our kid is or if we don't have kids because public schools and public libraries are really how we should be educating our people for freedom and for citizenship and all, that's not how it's working. It's the miseducation that we started talking about at the beginning. We're not getting our full histories. The effort now, the anti-critical race theory stuff that's going on, this is part of racism denial. You know, critical race theory is not being taught in any elementary, junior high, high school or college. It's being taught in law schools, right? But, but, but the anti-CRT people don't want us to talk about racism, social justice, history, any of that. And so we have to push back and, and we have to take care of our kids the best that we can, but we all kids are our kids. All children oh. are our children. We need to, when you talked about what they took from us, Karen, when they, when they took the land from the Native Americans and, they, and the near genocide, and when they took our humanity from those of us that they, the kidnapped Africans who were brought across the Atlantic, you know, the, in the Middle Passage, and, and so many of us perished. They took so much from us. We need to, they, they're trying to take our history, our humanity. We need to invest 
in us. And I forgot how I was going to loop that back to the to the anti-CRT, but the, it's the they don't want us to know because knowledge is power. They don't want to know us our full humanity. They don't want us anybody who's white listening to this. If you want to start your individual anti-racism journey, your first job is to read widely and to read history. Mm. Those of us who don't know our full histories, the younger people who think that you know, in Ferguson was the first time that black folks stood up against racism. I heard actually a first year medical student at a black medical school say, well, at least our generation is doing something about that. And I was like, oh my God, I, my generation has failed. Yes. How come they don't know that history of our struggle? So all of us need to read widely and read history. We need to have our kids not growing up to be consumers, but growing up to be citizens, speaking more than one language, traveling across town, if that's as far as you can get, or across the state or across the world. We need to understand we are global citizens and don't let people make us small thinking about our civil rights when we have human rights. There's so much. Oh, all right. As we mentioned, this is the beginning. Uh, Dr. Kamara will be back. We're going to do a blueprint for how to dismantle racism this year. I'm super excited. I thought you were come to talk about COVID. See, so I could talk like, about that too. <laughs> all right, we got we got less than five minutes. What should we know? Give give us something we should know because there's a lot of again misinformation out there around this virus. As an epidemiologist, testing and the 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 now there's a new variant out of France. Lord have mercy! I'm like not another Lord variant. What is this one? What is this well, France? This this a uh, variant B one six forty point two? What the hell? What do we, what should we know, Doctor Jones? We should know that we should be wearing the best masks that we can get. So we should be wearing a KN94 or KN95 or an N95 mask. We should not be uh, messing around now with a blue surgical mask or a cloth mask or no mask. <laughs> we should be masking. We should be masking anytime we are anywhere around other people. Even I would say outside, if you think you're going to come up against some people. If I roll down my window at Starbucks, I put my mask on. You got to have the mask because... Because as long as the virus is allowed to be running rampage anywhere around the world, we are at risk. We in the United States think that those of us who, first of all, we feel so entitled to all the vaccine that we have sequestered in this nation. We have extra vaccine that, that we are using that we should be sending out to the world. We at first were standing against the Indian and South African uh, calls to share the, the our mRNA virus blueprints. We stopped standing against it, but we're not really fully promoting it. We are as a nation, yes, we are donating vaccine around the world, but we need to do more because as long as this virus is allowed to be running rampage anywhere, then our vaccines will be moved. So that's, that's the thing we need to know. So politically on the organizing side, then we need to be pushing our nation to make sure I think it would be obscene, although I might, it would be obscene for us to be going into getting our fourth shots without making sure that the people in Haiti have their first two shots, right? Or the people in Ethiopia or people all over the world, right? Because as long as we're allowing it to fester, it's gonna come back and bite us. But for us right now, so you need to get your full, be fully vaccinated and boosted. What does that mean? Well, for those who got the Johnson & Johnson, you need, if it's been two months since you got the Johnson & Johnson, you need to get either the Pfizer 
or the Moderna booster, I would say. And if you did that, and now it's five months since you got that, you need to get it again. If you got the full two doses of the Pfizer and the Moderna, and it's been five months, you need to go get a booster. You need to, if you're going to be going somewhere, hanging out with some people, all of you all should test with one of the home tests if you can get one. Those are hard. But you shouldn't be going in to situations where you're going to be all casual with people and you don't know if they're infected or not. This stuff is real. The people who are getting the sickest now are those who have not gotten the vaccine. A lot of people who have been vaccinated are so grateful they got vaccinated because when they get it, it, it comes light and it goes, right? But all of us should be masking well and, and taking it seriously and encouraging those people in our communities who feel like they're vegan and they hike and all like that, so they don't need the vaccine. Yes, my brother. Yes, my sister. You need the vaccine. You do. Let's have you back uh, to talk about the long-term effects of this virus because it's different. And what impact will it have? While racism is not genetic, this could probably alter something, even though they think the vaccine is going to alter our DNA. This va- this virus actually could long-term have an impact. So let's let's talk about that. You're coming back. It's, it's, oh, it's, I it's, hope so. Thank you. You're coming back. You're coming back. Dr. Jones will be back. It's going to be a regular on the Karen Show. Let me just thank, thank you, Tanya, for making it. This, ah. Uh, 